Welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about publishing your work. I'm Jenna Mathiason, an objects conservative based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservative based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservative based in Cambridgeshire. If anyone was expecting an episode on analysis here, there's been a slight mix up of schedules. <laughs> so we're going to have a really great time talking about publishing your work instead, which is going to be great. These things happen. I had actually work. forgotten that, of course, we've already promised uh, that episode. So, so guys. Yeah. Yeah. Should we do some news before we? Yes. Yes. Excellent. My news aren't really news as such, but the fun things I've come across. First of all, I really love that there's an AI that they've developed that can map faces. Now, obviously, people are freaked out that this is going to be used for evil. But <laughs> I genuinely just thought for Harry Potter photographs, right? <laughs> yeah, Surely yeah. that's the only, the yeah, only yeah. reason. <laughs> but what I was thinking was that, oh my God, because part of the demo for this, this little YouTube clip that I'll link you to, the, dem- the demo for this was various black and white photographs of people in history, prominent people. And then they'd also done the Mona Lisa and she looks well cool when she's moving <laughs> no i'm just i'm so thrilled because then it brings a whole different aspect to these portraits that you could have them moving it's amazing i'm so thrilled that this is a thing that we can play with now that got me very excited Another thing that I wanted to raise was that there's been an interesting thing that came out of the recent IPM conference in Sweden. Mm. There were some tweets about someone in conversation with other conservatives had said something along the lines of, well, I'm a real conservator, which they took to mean that they were someone who works on objects as opposed to someone who does preventative conservation. What a thing to say at a preventative conservation conference. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm sure that person is aware of how the internet is feeling about it now. But anyway, obviously... You, was this like a... I'm making an awkward joke because networking is hard and I'm nervous kind of thing. I is that... I is, don't know. Do you think that was that? I mean, it could I mean, be. I mean, we all say stupid stuff Misjudged. Sometimes. It might have been a joke yeah, and it just yeah, didn't yeah. land. Yeah. But yeah, so it did stir up a certain amount of discussion on Twitter, shall we say, yeah. about um, how we shouldn't segregate the profession mm-hmm. and, you know, think of one as more important than the other because obviously they're all really important mm-hmm. and definitely definitely equal under conservation just to be clear (laughs) can i just do a quick shout out to if the person who made that misjudged joke if we assume that it was such and is now listening to this going oh i had no idea it had such a backlash oh my god i feel like a or i feel just super embarrassed or whatever people say stupid stuff sometimes it's fine don't worry it's gonna be all right (laughs) but yes but it did raise some interesting you know thoughts about maybe there is a certain amount of elitism yeah in within the profession you know like oh like we're ranking even certain kinds of Mm -hmm. practical conservation above others yeah and i do think there is a lot of that mentality is it ranking as such because i'm thinking that actually quite often people who work in preventive conservation or collections care more generally are actually possibly more likely to be paid more than the people who just work with their hands if you see what i mean because they're doing important strategic stuff across whole collections that's an interesting angle and i think one of the problems is that we just don't really have a good working 
definition of who a conservator is yeah and, and how we because on the one hand we want to be inclusive and make sure that all the people who don't just work physically with objects are counted as conservators if they're doing work that counts towards conservation yeah i know that when um accreditation came in there was a lot of anxiety about well what if i'm a conservation manager or what if i work in yeah. education yeah or you know i'm still a conservator so on the one hand you want to include all those people but on the other hand i think as a profession we do want to kind of gatekeep it a bit and make sure that only proper conservators and by that i don't mean people who just work on objects i mm. mean people who have been through some sort of proper conservation training, people who subscribe to the overall ethical principles of the profession and so on. We want to make sure that it only includes those people and that it doesn't include your kind of dodgy backstreet <laughs> restorers mm. or whatever. But then I think the people that even if you're a conservator who has never done any practical conservation work, if you're a proper conservator, then you'll you'll align yourself with the ethics that would allow you to make the decision to say... yeah. Um, I'm being asked to do this piece of conservation work, but actually I haven't done it since I trained. So I'm going to contact my peers and either ask Mm. for advice or outsource. And that is something that's so common anyway, that that, I think that's the root of why I think it's a really weird thing to say or a weird attitude to have. I agree with that. But I also think as a profession, we've had collective wobbles over some very famous videos on YouTube. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) And um, we've wanted to say, well, that's not proper conservation they're not doing it right they're not proper conservators and so I think there is this kind of general confusion ambiguity anxiety yeah. I'm not quite sure what in in for the profession as a whole about what is and what isn't conservation who isn't who isn't a proper conservator and I think you know most people understand that it doesn't have to be just people who do bench work yeah because because a lot of I mean conservators are probably less and less doing bench work now and that's why as a profession we're also having collective hysteria about loss of practical skills and so, <laughs> you know i mean we can't we can't get it right i mean this this just reminds me of my own <laughs> wobbles in season three where i wasn't working yeah in yeah, conservation yeah. I, I mean i had a different day job yeah um, and i was still doing bits and pieces of conservation and i was still contributing towards the profession but i i had a bit of a mini crisis myself in a kind of well can i still call myself conservator mm. am i doing it enough conservation is there like a lower threshold to be counted as a proper conservator do i have to have done it within a particular time frame do i have to be doing particular activities you guys were kind enough to say yes i was a proper conservator and you weren't going to chuck me off the show (laughs) (laughs) but i do think it is a tricky one when a lot of the time we're just not doing bench work but then i do think we have to sort of be self obviously self-aware as a mental health thing that the imposter syndrome is real we will always be familiar with the that sort of deep down oh shit am i good enough to do this feeling and because that's this is the nature of the human mind but is that that that's not unique to conservation presumably there's no reason why we should suffer from imposter syndrome more than say nurses or teachers or whatever no but i suppose i suppose well we can we can talk about conservation with uh, <laughs> with awareness or, or are we more, more um, neurotic as, as yeah, maybe we are another really really, yeah, maybe <laughs> i suppose if we okay if we if i was to try and argue that it is um specifically a problem for conservation i would say that we are constantly encouraged to self-assess and to yeah, be, be considerate of, of what we achieve and what we can achieve and also to be self-doubtful because that's, you know, 
part of the questioning aspect of things. So if we are putting ourselves in a position where we're saying, am I good enough to do this? And you're putting yourself under that situation every day of your working life, then it may well have a bit of some sort of emotional impact if a lot of the time you're going, well, I've never done this before. Mm. Particularly for people in their early careers or people who have, um, as you're saying, if you've not done it for five years or something, you might feel, oh no, I've lost the skills. But you know, it's not quite like riding a bike, but you know, that's what practice runs are for, right? This is actually a great discussion about what is a conservator and what yeah. isn't a conservator. And but yeah, actually the thing that I was I was trying to establish was that whatever we agree is is the conservator. As a conceptual <laughs> entity, the conservator is fine. I guess I'm trying to say that it's you're no less a conservator if you don't do bench work and you're no less good a conservator if you don't work on old masters. Uh, and actually you work on train parts, that doesn't make you any Mm. less of a conservator and it doesn't make you a a less special one. We're all special, incredible people who work in this profession. We're we're all conservators with different skill sets. Absolutely. But sometimes you do come across a bit of snobbery. Yes. And I think it's possibly that snobbery that came out in that joke. That that same kind of snobbery can be seen in, oh, you work with objects. Oh, well, well, I only work with... (laughs) x i only work with y and it's like okay well jesus i'm a generalist uh calm down we could probably do with being a little bit more maybe humble towards our fellow conservatives mm. and maybe just possibly just get the full cheerleading outfit on and go we're all incredible people yeah. doing incredible things whether that is looking at the, pest the ones on youtube well so yeah, that was an interesting discussion that came up. Something at Icon that you're probably heading towards now. Oh yeah, because this is out as you're probably travelling to Icon 19 if you are going. If yeah. you're not going, then get ye on Twitter. Yeah, and there will um, be so much content on Twitter. Yeah. And if you are going, come and hang out with us. On yes. Thursday. Come and say hi, please. Come yes. and say hi at the conference or hang out with us and have drinks on the Thursday. There are full so nice. details on Twitter. This is my bit of news. I just ordered our t-shirts and they arrived and they're really oh, nice. I love good excellent i look forward to wearing one. Oh, uh, i just want cool. to say is there does anyone else have an insane amount of carpet beetle because i have an insane amount of carpet beetle and i don't mean oh, no. just at work i also mean in my home in my garden i've never had them in my garden before and now they are everywhere in my garden they're oh, in no. my house they're everywhere at work and i'm like is this just a really good year for carpet beetle please someone back me up on this or I am i just seen in any the in manchester luckiest location in the uk i don't know because i'm not eating that... in your garden i don't know i don't really understand but they're in some of my flowers for no reason I just wanted to share something else cool that I found, which is only kind of tangentially related to conservation. But I found out about this thing called the Rosetta Project, which is a part of um, trying to make a very long term language archive. And so this is part of something called the Long Now Foundation, which is trying to preserve these things for like 10,000 years. They want to try and make a some sort of archive of the world's languages they've got i think they go over 1500 human languages and they have chosen to use a physical medium for storing this information rather than a digital one so i thought that was an interesting choice and something that might be of interesting interest to conservators obviously we've talked about time-based media in the past and the fact that there are massive issues with sort of long-term compatibility and being able to actually read (laughs) digital stuff. Yeah. What they've actually made is this three-inch disc and they have etched 
texts in 1500 languages onto the reverse of the disc on using nano etching mm. um, on the grounds that even if the world returns to some sort of dark ages after environmental <laughs> cataclysm or, or nuclear war or whatever it is that's going to befall us in the future... <laughs> Even if this happens, we will probably still have the means to magnify things or ah. to read things that are physical. Um, and so they've used nano etching to etch 13,000 pages of text on the back of this disc. Oh, my. Um, covering 1,500 languages. So there's a bit of information about each language. Um, there's also something called a Swadesh list, which is a list of very basic vocabulary, the words that are the most important, most frequent words found in a language. So pronouns and then um, body parts, um, basic animals and food and stuff like that. They've got that in each of these languages as well. And then they've got some texts like the beginning of the Book of Genesis from the Bible or the UN Declaration of Human Rights. So you'll also be able to compare between the texts. Um, and I That's guess this is why it's called the Rosetta Project, yes. just like the Rosetta Stone had parallel texts in different languages. Obviously, each of these pages that's etched on the back is half a millimetre across. So you might well not know it's there. So to make sure that people get the idea, on the top of the disc... On the other side of it, they've got a picture of the world. Around it, they've got a spiral of text in eight major languages. And it starts off big and then gradually gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So the idea is that you're supposed to understand. You'll be able to see the big bits easily with the naked eye. And then as it gets smaller, That's you'll understand so that, you okay, know that you it's going down at Absolutely, you're doing it. And so the text, it says, Languages of the world, this is an archive of over 1,500 human languages assembled in the year 02008 CE, because they're looking the long view, so 2008 <laughs> is <laughs> nice. using five digits. Um, magnify 1,000 times to find over 1,300 pages of language documentation. So then the disc is also going to be kept inside this sort of sphere and the top part, and the disc is um, sort of halfway across, across the equator, if you see what I mean, with a hemisphere on the top and a hemisphere on the bottom. And the hemisphere on the top is made from um, very good quality optical glass. And so it also acts as a little magnifier, six times magnifier, this sort of dome on ah, the top half that's, that's protecting so it. That's so cool. And then the bottom hemisphere is made from high grade stainless steel. Um, we've machined a hollow cylinder into the bottom hemisphere that holds a stainless steel ribbon for the disc caretakers to etch their names, locations and dates, hopefully creating a unique pedigree for each Rosetta object as it travels through time and human hands. A small stylus tool is included for future caretakers to add additional information. I have goosebumps. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's the travelling through time thing. Imagining people finding this in like 10,000 years. I have two comments. One is who's funding this... I love them. And the other is the person who designed this project definitely is a fan of sci-fi. The advisory panel seems to be made up of sort of linguistics professors. Right. And the Long Now Foundation, I don't know who funds them. But yeah, it's anyway, check it out. Um, we'll put the um, URLs for the Rosetta Project and the Long Now Foundation in the show notes. So you can check it out yourself if you want and maybe get hold of one of these things and keep it in your museum. That's so cool. Mega cool. All right. Thanks. That's a very specific type of publishing. <laughs> Which ties in nicely. <laughs> oh, smooth. <laughs> I feel like when I went to uni, the only valid ways of publishing your work were you must write papers 
that go into established journals, preferably the more complicated <laughs> yeah. and scientific yeah. ones, or you may present at conferences preferably the more serious the better mm-hmm. i feel like those were the valid options for publishing your work which is a terrifying thing to tell anyone mm-hmm. and also yeah as a starter out into the world of conservation that's not like yeah. going is it no because i feel like those were the kind of they are the well-established ways of publishing your work and i very much feel like that was described as the accurate way of publishing yeah can we make that less daunting that's um, terrifying okay so there's quite a few assumptions in there that I think we could discuss. Yes. One is you say, I felt we had to. Yeah. So where's that coming from and why? Why Why do you have to publish stuff? Oh, I suppose we went to a fairly science-heavy degree course, although it was also very practical, mm-hmm. but it did have a lot of scientific elements. And I've, I do feel like... The idea was that anything that you discover is useful to other people. Yes. So you must share that information. And this is the established way of sharing it. Yeah. So to be fair, that's a really good message that anything you do find out could be useful to someone else. That's totally a takeaway that I'm so on board with. And that you must share that with other people. Must. Well, (laughs) yeah, it kind of must. Yeah, so I think... Yeah, so I I feel that we, um, and this is probably the nature of universities, because yes, you've got the, the, the element of conservation, which is learn your vocation, essentially, but it's also about being an academic. And if that is sort of traditionally the road to publication, then we were very much taught you write your essays as though they were to be published. And obviously writing anything whilst you're at university is going to have to be to a certain mm-hmm. level. So I, I don't think that was a mismatch in, in any shape, way or form. It's just you're expected to produce work and that should be of a certain quality and of a certain style. That's university. Mm-hmm. That's all good. But I think it, had, it came with certain overtones of you're finding the information that is reliable and peer-reviewed by going to these academic sources. These are the academic sources that we expect you to mm. go and feed into. Contribute to the profession, basically. Yes. Like, yeah. That was the, this is the body of knowledge and you should contribute to that body of knowledge. Okay, and what's in it for you? Apart from the warm glow of satisfaction you get from knowing you've been altruistic <laughs> and contributed to the profession. I, I guess something to put uh, put on your LinkedIn profile or your CV. Yeah, okay. But I feel like it was more of a, it's a feather in your cap. It's something yeah, you can say that yeah. you've done. Yeah, for me, it's contribute, be kind of... Are you trying to say be useful? <laughs> I'm trying to say be useful. Okay. Yeah, be useful in the conservation profession, help others. That's how I feel about it. Okay, interesting. Okay. And you specifically mentioned preferably scientific journals. What's behind that? I definitely feel like, again, because this was a lot of the thing of like, where do you find your information when you are researching things? And because I feel like the slightly more scientific looking journals were the ones that were more heavily trusted. Not that you shouldn't be so you should always be source critical, obviously, that was very clear. But I feel like there was a a very kind of heavy preference towards the ones with a lot of very boring graphs uh, and (laughs) illegible tables <laughs> do you mean studies in conservation <laughs> i kind of do there are others there are certainly others don't worry about it it's not just you guys and it's not all but that there, either. actually 
I mean, no, but I feel like we were very encouraged to go and go and look at adjacent fields as well. So you might be that you got okay. someone from Metallurgy International or something. That's probably not even a journal, but you know, like it's something that's very adjacent. Maybe something in archaeological science studies. You know, that sort of thing. Like you could go into adjacent fields, but it had to be very sciency to be considered useful. And again, that's just trying to be source critical. And I get that uh, they tend to be rigorously peer reviewed when they go when they go into that kind of journal and that sort of thing that was kind of the preference the kind Mm. of encouraged way to go like that's the gold standard you should aim to publish in those sorts of things since then i feel that now well maybe this is just a change in attitude to what the focus of student versus mid-career at an institution now i feel like it's very much make strides in the profession develop technique use and identify new useful materials that solve problems that we have. And do you think a rigorous, repeatable experiment that's been published in a very uh, highly regarded metallurgy journal is going to help us make strides in the profession? Only if we know it's there. Yeah, uh, so I'm not I'm not being arsy for the sake of it. No, I'm just we know. saying I think I think this kind of attitude is very common, and yet it is not what people do when yeah. it comes mm. to publishing, and it is not even the kind of publications people necessarily want to read. Mm. Yeah, I think I'm much more likely to read the Icon Journal of Studies in Conservation than. Mm. Ooh, there was this published in this really scary looking metallurgy something something and uh, oh look at those tables maybe I'll just skim it okay it's probably not relevant but I mean and I know this is a slight tangent here but I feel like the stuff that I could access because I was part of a university when I was a student even then we did end up paying for quite a lot ourselves mm. because obviously memberships of things like the IAC and stuff that's stuff that you yeah. purchase as a person not something that you necessarily have as through your institution because mm-hmm. it's more of an individual membership thing but and when you're part of a university you do have a certain access to a pool of academic journals and books and that sort of, sort of thing so you had a lot more access that you could uh, look up on a research database that mm-hmm. oh actually I'll I'll just grab these articles from this thing and I'll pull those together and I'll try to figure out what the answer is to my question mm-hmm. But now, when I am on my own, I pretty much never use those tools to find research because I can't. There's no way I'm going to pay $25 for an article that might not even be useful to me, you know, out of my own pocket because my institution doesn't have any money when I'm trying to find out an answer. Mm. Uh, That's not how I find research now. And that's, that's also an interesting aspect that... It's like an academic world for an academic world in some ways. Yeah. And whilst I would love to put that much time into my research now and be able to access those sources, that's not the world that I live in now. So that's an important shift. And that was a real gear change when you stepped out of university grounds into working world. That was a really interesting shift in how you could even get information. That's Yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that, actually, but I've definitely asked i mean obviously there are so many tools for doing our own research like for example the dist list or all the journals that are available i'm definitely more likely to ask you guys on our facebook chat about a thing that i'm researching to get your opinions rather than go into google scholar and try and wade through the more fringe journal articles definitely and I I'm not saying that that's a good thing. I'm just saying that that's there's only so much time you can spend trying to research something that may or may not help you, basically. 
Wow. How how do how do you how does that make you? Did that crush your soul? (laughs) Not at all. I think it's really interesting. Okay, so one thing I would say is we started off this episode by talking about real conservators and people who do bench work versus people who do other things. And in that context, we were talking, I think, about preventive conservation, but presumably that would also include conservation scientists who yeah. don't actually oh, absolutely. work on objects. So I think the fact that conservators, most of whom will do some sort of hands-on intervention, f- still feel that the gold standard is to publish a near incomprehensible scientific study in <laughs> a highly respected scientific journal that's not even a conservation one. I think it's absolutely fascinating because that completely goes against what you are actually doing in your day-to-day life. I feel quite strongly that people who want to publish things don't think enough about their audiences. And seems quite obvious to me, but clearly isn't, that if you want to publish something, you ought to think about who you actually want to read this. As you've just suggested, Chloe, people don't read an awful lot. And in fact, there's an article by Velson Horry in Icon News from a while ago, where he says rather provocatively that conservators don't read, basically. They don't read articles after they leave university. And if you want to make conservators aware of something, you have to go and present it at a conference or even better go up to their workplaces and tell them in person. This is the only way you can try and transmit news. <laughs> and he kind of compares it to sort of the oral tradition of medieval craftsmen and so <laughs> Oh, I love it. Oh, can we have a bard, a conservation bard, just rock up and sing us a little ballad about the latest strides forward in conservation i would like that i I mean there's there's a lot of truth in that and i think people are more likely to turn to social media now rather than look at publications Mm. so you might well think to yourself well why the am i publishing this then if no one (laughs) yes you're sharing it in some sort of theoretical way yes you're sharing and contributing to the profession but actually if people aren't reading it or if it's not reaching the right people then you may as well not bother so That's one thing I would say. I would say that what conservators want to read, by and large, is not analyses of obscure corrosion products that are only found on a particular type of bronze, Chinese bronze or whatever, um, that's been published in a metallurgy journal somewhere. I think a lot of the time what conservators are looking for is workable solutions to practical problems. And those problems might be to do with bench work. How do I, literally, how do I fix this? What's the best adhesive that will Mm. suit this particular set of circumstances? Or how can I have a less wobbly climate in my shed? (laughs) That's what I was going to say. Not just practical problems, but also things like collections management problems. Or what's the most cost-effective way to buy a load of new storage boxes for things. And I think Mm. at the moment, we don't have great outlets for sharing that kind of information. And one of the problems is that people feel inhibited from writing about these things because they feel it's not kind of worthy enough. Mm. But as an editor, and I have edited two conservation journals in the past, and I've also edited a number of books, and I've also written articles, coming at this as an editor the question that's always in the forefront of my mind is why are you telling me this yeah yeah when somebody writes something why are you telling me this why are you telling me this (laughs) is all of this relevant is it necessary is it useful do people Mm. need to know this people are busy and access to articles can sometimes be difficult to get so make it worth their while and i spent quite a lot of time kind of letting people down gently about why 
the article that they thought was really, really important was not actually very useful or interesting to other people. I think it can be quite hard to get outside your own perspective and think, well, this is interesting to me. It's interesting to my institution that we've discovered this about this object. But actually, is it interesting to anybody else? Does anybody else have the same kind of objects in their collections? Or Mm. is this one so unique and therefore not really you know what I found out about it is not really applicable to other people and you see that quite a lot where people do a lot of background and contextual information about an object and then will write paragraphs about the basketry industry in 19th century Germany or something or about what they found about this and (laughs) yeah okay that's great it's probably not that interesting to conservators unless you can show that it has some kind of direct impact on the current condition of the object or on the treatment decisions that you might make about the object. Mm. But I think a lot of the time people do find out an awful lot of stuff and they want to chuck it all in there so it doesn't get wasted. But actually, it, it doesn't necessarily make for a good article. I do, I do think that's, that's a really important point. And sometimes both at conferences and when reading things, yes, I do sometimes read things, then uh, it's, it's an interesting thing to come across. Either people explain something so thoroughly that you kind of lose track of the entire article. And then similarly, you've got the other side of the spectrum where people don't explain anything because they assume that everyone knows exactly what this very, very obscure device from the 1600s used for scientific medical practices is. Because obviously everyone's got one of those, right? And it's just like, I could have done with just like a one-liner what this is. <laughs> um, so you do get both. And obviously that's a really difficult balance to strike uh, as it is with any type of writing, that you don't want to over-describe de- over something, but you also don't want to completely undersell something by going, obviously everyone knows what this is. No, but you should know your audience again. Yes. And that audience will have a common body of knowledge, one hopes. Yes. I saw this a lot with students who would send me their... Um, master's dissertations. The trouble is that there is a, there are a lot of differences between a fifteen or twenty thousand word student master's dissertation and an article that would reasonably be published in a professional conservation journal. And you cannot send one and expect it to be automatically turned into the other. For one thing, a lot of conservation journal articles have a word limit, and that might be five or 10,000 words. It certainly won't be 20,000 words. So you can't expect the editor to take on the work of cutting down your article. For another thing, a lot of student dissertations will have things like a very lengthy literature review, for example, Mm. and some kind of background information acknowledging the context in which your research is taking place is necessary in a journal article, but certainly not a literature review of that kind of length. And mm. then the other problem I found often with student work is that they over-explain things because they're often trying to demonstrate that they know this stuff, that they've done because their they reading, have they've done to, their journal. Yeah. Mm. So you see things like um, the ceramic was repaired with 40% B72 in acetone. B72 is a ethyl methacrylate, methyl acrylate yeah. copolymer, which is often selected by conservators because it has great reverse and you know good aging properties and they'll give you like a whole paragraph about b72 and why it's a good conservation adhesive we don't need to know that if you're publishing in a conservation journal you're talking to other conservation professionals they know what b72 is they Devil's know why advocate, you should choose though. it 
devil's yes. advocate. I understand that this is different to introducing a new polymer, essentially. But sometimes the obvious information is glossed over so much because we assume knowledge that sometimes it's just really nice to have that information. <laughs> You know? So what you would do is put a reference to oh, yeah, Stephen yeah, Coombs, yeah. very many articles about B72. <laughs> and if somebody really wants to find it out, they can follow it up for themselves. Or if you've selected it because of one of those properties in particular, then you use that as part of the justification for your treatment yeah. Yeah. Oh, so process. Good. But putting everything in like that makes an article frankly unreadable and is a waste of time so sorry if this sounds harsh but i'm just explaining so, it sounds pretty um, no. harsh but i think yeah, well, i think you've no. definitely got some things that people is useful to hear and i can add to this in a small way by saying i did publish my master my msc dissertation mm-hmm. but it required like a year's worth of really stripping it down mm. to yep. basically the barest of bones and chloe Yours got published because you did all that stripping down. You know, if you hadn't done that, it wouldn't have got published. So, But along a similar vein, so I thought for years and years that I should publish my dissertation in some shape, way or form. But I just couldn't think of a form factor that would work Mm. up until the point where uh, I conducted that Twitter conference. Mm. And I was like, you know what? Screw it. I want to put this out there. It was a very strange format to work with in terms of trying to put scientific data across, but also why it would matter. Mine was about museum gel and the weird properties it has and why it may or may not be a good choice. Mm. And it was kind of fun, actually, to try to boil down polymer science because it was a horrendously scientific (laughs) uh, dissertation because polymer science, woo! You don't need to know most of those bits. So it was really fun trying to boil it down into 12 tweets, which were illustrated and needed to be to demonstrate something that wasn't just here's an FTIR spectrum of what mm. the gel is. That doesn't mean anything to anyone. Like, it doesn't matter. So it became about trying to put across the concepts instead and boiling them down into the character limit, which was a really fun and really hard the, exercise. I have to say, I think that was it was a genius idea. Because it's obviously, it's accessible to everyone who has Twitter. Even people who don't, because they can still look at Twitter. Because they can still look. And it was a very accessible way of, I want to quickly look at this. And it didn't even need to be, you know, attending something because you could look at it all afterwards. So I thought that was really genius. What I'm wondering is whether it would be beneficial for the the profession to have something between a Twitter conference and a journal that essentially does a short page per page those things exist they are called blogs <laughs> yes and <laughs> i mean icon puts out right. blogs <laughs> yeah no it's, sorry okay like a list of you know if you want to be included in this for the research that you have done this quarter if I mean, that was necessary that's a, that's a fun concept that i quite like mm. um a lot yeah. of journals have short communications, which are basically very short cut down articles that might not make a full article, but are still worth communicating to people, hence the name. And also Icon News often, very often publishes these quite short, very yes. practically focused yes. articles. And please consider that, guys. <laughs> not yes. you, I mean, all of us, all of our listeners, please consider putting these things in Icon News because more people read Icon News, I'm willing to bet, than some of the other more obscure journals. And if you're just interested in reaching people, then that's a good way to do it. Blogs are also a brilliant way of reaching people. Yeah, absolutely. And that is a very good point. I do actually love the practical ones that come, in, mm. come up in Icon News. Many of them I have torn out 
that and saved. Can I also just make it absolutely clear that I wasn't pissing on student dissertation work? No, 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 of course. And in fact, a lot of the time, students are the ones doing the cutting edge research because they are the ones experimenting with new materials they're the ones with access to loads of SEMs and you know amazing analytical equipment that's in their universities they're the ones whose universities will buy them this kind of weird unobtainable cutting edge material so they are often doing really innovative interesting work important work that should be shared with the profession but sending an editor your MSc dissertation is not the way to do it. No, absolutely. And also, I would like to point out that for your research to be valuable, you can be an undergrad, you can be a postgrad, you don't have to be a PhD, just to make that clear, because I feel like there's a lot of weird academic pressures where it's like, oh, well, only counts if I have a PhD (laughs) in it. It does not. Your research and your insights, even if it's, I tried this, it did not work. Turns out that's not a thing. That's (laughs) still valuable data. And I want to hear about it. Tell me your failures. Sorry. Uh, I just, I I love. Oh, I love hearing when things don't work. I won't waste my time on that. Yes. No, exactly. How would I know otherwise that, oh, I should definitely not do that. Mm. If if you you don't tell me, you know, like that, that's we we all need to learn from each other's mistakes. It's a huge deal, and as a profession, we really need to do that a lot more. So, what I'd like to publish myself, and what I always think, as I've already said, I want to be helpful. I want to make developments in the profession, but my I feel my problem is that I don't have the time to make those develop. I don't have time to do experimenting, which is, of course, what we were just saying about students being the main sort of um, forerunners of this, essentially, because they're the ones that are encouraged to take the time on this sort of exploration. I would argue that conservators every day are engaged in problem solving. And quite often those problems are unique and the solutions that they find may or may not be unique. I mean, I don't want to pick this up too much because we do, or at least I certainly have done an awful lot of very routine bulk work where you're basically doing the same treatment to like 50 objects or whatever and there's absolutely nothing innovative or interesting about that but every now and then you do come across something where a standard solution won't work and you have to devise your own solution and I would argue that that kind of problem solving is just as important as the formal experiment with a hypothesis and a very clear scientific method and so on and I would also say that that kind of scientific problem solving is only really a tiny subset of the kind of problem solving that conservators are engaged in. And if we don't have all the other kind of stuff published, then we're missing out a huge amount of activity that would be useful to other people. So you have probably actually come up with various solutions that might be interesting to other people and could be published without realising it, even though you don't have time to set up formal experiments. So that's a problem with the profession as a whole, is that it expects from us that we'll contribute in this way but then it's not normally allowed for in our day-to-day workload yeah. Uh, yeah i guess you know if there's something you really want to do like this you could try negotiating with your manager to be given a couple of days to do it and to show willing most people will say okay i'll do the actual writing up in my own time at home but can i just have a couple of days in the lab to do the working out and the quid pro quo there is that you know i'll write it up and 
it will get published and our institution will be covered in glory because we've done this innovative work or whatever so you know i think often you do have to find your you, you do find yourself having to negotiate like that it can be harder when you don't personally have a lot of control over your own workload which has certainly been the case for me this is something i hear a lot so i should say i teach courses in writing for publication for conservation publishing um twice a year at the moment um there's going to be one on the 1st of october in cambridge if anybody's interested in coming you do have to pay but it is a whole day um that most people have been kind enough to say they found very useful and encouraging and in that day i cover everything from how to get together an article how to submit it how the whole article submission and editing process works, how to do proofreading, um, how to do references, how to prepare images. Um, We do some practical exercises, uh, some of which are a bit silly, but quite fun and so on. So it's quite a full on day, but um, most people say that they've learnt quite a lot about writing for publication at the end of it and that they've been encouraged to actually get on and do it. So 1st of October in Cambridge, if you're interested. Because something I hear a lot is that people just don't have the time to publish. And there are a few rarefied institutions, I would say, where conservators do get to do this as part of their work and can legitimately spend the day just writing. But for most of us, that's not the case. And unfortunately, if you want to do something like this, you are going to have to be prepared to do a lot of it in your own time. That's just the sad reality. If you want to think about it another way, you could say, well, you know, I'm probably not going to be in the same job forever, what with conservation contracts what being what they are, and I will move on to another institution. But when I do that, the publication comes with me. It's my work. I get to take it with me. So you can also see it as an investment in your own professional development if you like and as something that comes with you on your cv i mean to justify why you might well want to do it in your own time in the same way as you might be keeping a blog in your own time or building up a twitter profile or something like that or running a a podcast podcast. (laughs) as we record this on sunday lunchtime Um, and uh, (laughs) i'm really hungry certainly not doing this in work time and um so I suppose that that is one thing to be realistic about is that you are going to have to do the writing in your own time. Most workplaces will not let you just sit there and write an article. It's one of these very annoying things about conservation in some ways that, yes, you do have to do it in your own time. But at the same time, that's time that you should have for you, for your own self-care and for your own mm. mental well-being. But I also get it. Right. So how do you publish? Depends on what sort of thing you're going for, I suppose. Because, again, you could go on a podcast and talk about it. You could go on Twitter you could okay so how do you publish in a in a journal also in a printed format in a printed format okay. what uh, you say imagine you've got yourself a really great project you have written it up and you're really proud of it and you think it could really help people i'm i'm using the word project as a very really loose term so that it, you know what do you do i would identify where i want to submit it um, possibly Ooh, okay. even before I finished writing it up, actually. Uh, uh, because usually you are only allowed to submit things to one journal at a time. 
That is something I didn't know, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you don't yeah. want to accidentally publish yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, they, the journals want to know that what they're getting is original and is not plagiarised and whatever. So you can only submit to one journal at a time. So it is worth identifying your first choice of outlet. Um, and as I said, that might be based on the kind of audience you want to reach. So if you want to reach a lot of conservators, you might well consider something like Journal of the Institute of Conservation or Journal of the American Institute of Conservation. Or if you're a paper conservator, there's a number of uh, there's a number of journals that just deal with paper and library materials. There's the picture restorer for paintings conservators. If you are doing something that maybe talks about more general work in a museum and that you think would be of interest to collections managers and curators, you could consider something like the museums journal or museum practice, where you would be reaching a much broader audience of museum professionals. If you're talking about using a new analytical technique that happens to be used in a conservation treatment, but you think would be of interest to scientists who use that technique in other ways, you might well want to publish in some kind of physics journal or engineering journal in order to reach the right people there. The first thing I would do would be thinking, I'm only able to submit this to one place right now. I may get other chances later on, but right now I've got to think of where I most want to submit it. The next thing I would do would be to go to that journal's website and look for something that's called instructions for authors or guidelines for authors. Ah, uh, okay. And read them Follow them rigidly. You will really piss off the editor if you don't. And quite a lot of getting your work published is about not pissing off the editor. <laughs> Speaking from the point of view of a pissed off editor. <laughs> uh, if you come to my training course, by the way, there's a slide called Top 10 Ways How Not to Annoy an Editor. I was going to put How Not to Piss Off an Editor, but I didn't want to. Uh, <laughs> offend people, but I'm sure our listeners are made of sterner stuff. They um, are. Well, they'll have but... to be if they're going to continue. <laughs> The guidelines for authors should be on the website of every journal and they will tell you things like what the scope of the journal is, so the kind of subjects that they will and won't accept for publication. And there is literally no point submitting your article to them if it doesn't fall within the scope of that journal because they just can't publish it. So don't waste your time and their time by doing that. It will also have advice about the maximum length of an article, for example, which may or may not include references. So check which one it is. It might tell you if there's a limit on the number of images that you're allowed and whether they'll be published all in colour or only some of them can be published in colour and therefore you have to prioritise which ones you think would work best. It will tell you things. There might well be something that's called a style guide or house style, which will tell you the kinds of things, that the whether they use UK or US spelling, for example, and if they have particular preferred formats for, I don't know, Fourier transform infrared spectroscopy, for example. Is it hyphenated? Is it not? That kind of thing. Is it all capitalised? Is just Fourier capitalised because it's a name? You know, all that kind of jazz. OK, seems really boring, but just sorting your article out so that it conforms to these guidelines as much as possible will do quite a lot to getting you in the editor's good books. Another thing you can do is go over your references with a real fine tooth comb and make sure that they are in the format that the journal uses. And that's particularly important if you're reusing something like work that you've done for a student master's project where the university might have asked you to use um, a particular format of references and then the journal says, oh, actually, no, we use Harvard references instead or Chicago references, whatever. And it feels it can be really tedious trying to rewrite all your references from one format to another but it will 
again, it's quite important. It's going to have to be done one way or the other. So just grit your teeth and do it. Um, check that your references are complete, that you've got all the page numbers, that you've got all the volume and issue numbers for your journals, that you've got the names of the editors for conference books, that you've got all the authors, that you've double checked that all the details are correct. That kind of thing is also quite important because this is the sort of thing that will save time once your article's accepted, if the editor doesn't have to keep coming back to you and going, oh, actually, you've missed out this information. Can you go and look it up or whatever? So identify where you want it to be published. Look for the guidelines for authors, follow them and write your article accordingly. And then once you've done that, again, usually the journal's website will tell you what their procedure for submission is. So some journals have a rolling submission, which means you can submit articles at any time and they'll just go into a general pot and be worked on and they'll be put into a particular issue of the journal if they're accepted as and when they become ready. Other journals have particular deadlines for submission and say they have two issues a year. They might say our deadlines are 1st of March and 1st of September. And if you miss the 1st of March, then your next opportunity to submit is the 1st of September. So make sure you know when the deadlines are and don't miss those because it could really hold up publication. Um, In extreme cases, it might mean you're held up for a whole year if it's a journal that only publishes once a year. Um, So make sure you keep to the deadlines. A lot of journals now have an online submission system where you're encouraged to create a login and then upload it and just fill in a load of fill in a form giving your details and so on one thing you might be asked to do is to anonymize it so to take out your name and any other identifying information like your institution or the names of any other people Mm. involved in the project and that's because most reputable journals will go through a peer review process with submissions, which means that um, articles are sent off to two, usually two, sometimes more, experts in that particular topic who will read the article and advise the editor about whether or not they think the article should be published. And if it it should be published also about whether they think there are any things missing from it that need to be added or any particular important references that have been missed out or make suggestions about how it might be reordered or how it could be made clearer. All submissions that meet the sort of basic threshold of being the right kind of scope, the right kind of length and so on, will be sent off for peer review. The editor doesn't usually get to choose the articles at that stage for publication. So the editor will be saying, "Okay, we've got an article here about Aquazole. Who knows a lot about Aquazole? Who would be happy to read this paper for me? And they'll find two people and they'll say to them, please, could you read this article about Aquazole and let me know whether you think it should be published in our journal? And Mm. the article is sent to them anonymised so that the two peer reviewers don't know who has written the article. And that's because the real kind of gold standard process for peer review is what's called a double blind process which means that the peer reviewers don't know who's written the article and the author of the article doesn't know who's been reviewing their article and Mm. this is to avoid any kind of bias it's not just to protect people sort of at the beginning of their career and students and so on it's also because reviewers can be swayed by getting an article from somebody who's a really big name in conservation Particularly if it's not that great an article and you might be sort of wavering about whether or not you think it should be published and then you see it's by oh so-and-so who's head of conservation or whatever and is very eminent and so on. That kind of thing can tip the balance. So the idea is to make the whole review process as impartial as possible. I really like that. Hopefully, after this double-blind peer review, the editor will have two favourable 
reports from the reviewers. Um, I should say that peer review can take a long time. I mean, reviewers are normally given at least a month to read the papers and it might take a while to find them. So after you've submitted your article, everything might go really quiet <laughs> for a while. Uh, don't panic, stuff is happening, but it just means there's all this stuff going on behind the scenes, your paper's being reviewed and they're making decisions about it and so on. But it might be two or even three months before you hear the results of the peer review process. Um, some journals will also have a timeline which will tell you when you might expect to hear about it. So hopefully both reviewers have recommended your article should be published and then they'll tell the editor that and the editor will have a look and say, yep, I think I agree. Hopefully the peer reviewers have sent some useful constructive feedback. So when the editor says, yes, we're accepting your article, but you need to make these changes, they'll send the peer reviewers anonymized feedback to you as well. So that you've got some useful information about how you can um, mm. revise your article you'll be, then be given a period of time to revise it so it's really important that you stick to deadlines there some people get a bit huffy about getting feedback from the peer reviewers and i would say just listen to them just do it <laughs> it might seem a bit annoying that they're asking you to put in extra references and you might not think it's necessary but a they're the experts quite possibly they do know better than you so i'd consider whether that's the case and b <laughs> just jump through the f hoops if you want your article to be published don't start arguing now quite a lot of this is just about being pleasant and helpful <laughs> and not being a massive because there's always a risk that the editor will just decide this is not worth it if you're just making a fuss left right and center yeah so you revise your article you send it back the editor says, yeah, OK, I'm satisfied. You've answered all the points made by the peer reviewer now. And then they'll edit the article. A lot of the time, the copy editing is quite light touch. They'll be editing for clarity. They'll be editing for consistency. And they'll also be looking at completeness. So you'll quite possibly get something back from the editor with loads of really tedious, nitpicky, tiny changes that you might not think are necessary. But again, I would just accept them all unless you think it is really altering what it is you are trying to say in some kind of material way. But if it's not, it's not worth fighting about whether it's that or which that the editors put yeah, in yeah. or whether it's can not or can't or you know all of these kinds of things it's really not a hill you want to be dying on right now <laughs> <laughs> and then you'll send it back and once you've got a lovely beautifully edited copy of your paper then the editor will send it to the printers at this point you really cannot make any changes and that's because it's now not just the editor's time but any changes will have to go to the printer and the typesetter and then that becomes very time consuming and mm. expensive for the publisher and they'll be very reluctant to do that so do make sure that you are really happy with the final manuscript before it gets sent off to be typeset after that it will be typeset and a proof will be produced and nowadays these are normally sent to, by email as pdfs when you get the proof, there's quite often a very tight deadline for turning that around. And so you might be asked to give any uh, alterations within 72 hours or even within 48 hours. You really haven't got long. So if you know you're going to be away at any stage in this process, you need to tell the editor or nominate somebody else who can check the proofs for you. So what you're looking at in the proofs is making sure that everything's correct. There's no glaring typos. All of the figures are correct. Read it really carefully. Get someone else to read it, possibly. Read it twice on different days check it as carefully as you can you might have some changes to make you can mark those up on a printout 
and scan that and send it to the editor or you might put, a lot of people put pdf comments on and email it back or whatever but just make sure all of your corrections are really unambiguous and clear at that point the editor will also be proofreading and so all of these alterations or corrections are combined and sent back to the typesetter who will produce another proof and then you need to check that really carefully as well and again you might only get two or three days to turn that round and then when everybody's happy that there's no more corrections to be made, then your article gets published, basically. Some journals do what's called online first, which means that if the print edition of the journal is not due to come out for a couple of months, but your paper has been finished and is ready to go, then they'll put a digital copy online on their website even before. that. It will have actual page numbers and a slot reserved for it in the physical journal, but it will be available online as soon as it's ready. And so that's another reason why turning this stuff around quickly is quite good, because then your article gets out as quickly as possible. You don't have to wait for the physical journal to be printed. Oh, that's handy. And then wait for it to come through your letterbox. As an author, you should get a complimentary issue of the journal, even if it's not something you subscribe to normally. Wait for it to come through your letterbox and enjoy it and feel really proud of yourself. And take a deep bow because you've just got through this extremely lengthy (laughs) process and published an article. Yeah. It can take a long time. I wrote a literature review paper with my colleague Sophie Rowe and it took us 18 months um, Ooh, to that's get a into time. print from start to finish. Some of that was writing, quite a lot of that was finding a hundred different references, tracking down quite obscure references and so on. But it can take an awful long time. Bear in mind, your stuff's not going to appear next week. Well, so that's how to publish an article then. It feels so good to see your name in print somewhere <laughs> like that. You, you feel so proud. I mean, I guess as a parent, I should probably say I felt more proud when my children were born, but... <laughs> <laughs> close call there i would say i had articles before i had children so (laughs) maybe the children were a bit less impressive as a result but uh, it, it does feel really good and you should rightly be proud of yourself if you've got through this process it's meant to be rigorous it's meant to be exacting and the flip side of that is that all the pain means that you know that your article is high quality. You know that it's been judged by That's people what who I are was experts thinking. in the field. Yeah. And you can be really proud of yourself. It's not just any old that you've sent to anywhere. These are good quality articles and you should genuinely be proud of yourself. But equally, you should be very proud of yourself if you've written a really smashing article that ends up somewhere else or that you put online and you put a lot of work into. There are other ways of getting your stuff out there and they are also valid. And I think that's kind of what I wanted to get across, really, that there, there are loads of ways of getting your information out there. Depending on who you want to talk to and how you want to do that, they are all good ways. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, media generally is changing how we research and how we communicate with each other. But I do think there is something very valuable in the um, traditional methods of publication. I was interested that you mentioned Google Scholar, Chloe. When I teach these courses, I get a lot of quite early career professionals coming along because they're the kind of people who are thinking about writing their first article. And I ask them where they look for information and increasing numbers of them are looking online. They're looking through Google to find out what information is already out there. And a surprising number of them are not aware that there are actually two conservation-specific databases of abstracts that you can look at. I mentioned that because I used to do that. That's how I used to research um, for archaeology. Mm. Google Scholar. 
Yeah. Okay. Okay, so there's AATA, which is produced by the Getty, and they have paid abstractors, which are literally people who are paid to read articles, and if the article doesn't already have an abstract, they will write an abstract of it. And then the other one is BCIN, which is produced by the Canadian Institute for Conservation and so is a bilingual conservation database, abstract database, which is available in English and French. And both of these, basically, whenever stuff is published that might be of interest to conservators, and they have volunteers who send them things as well, so things that might be of interest that aren't in the main conservation publications, they take all of the abstracts of everything that's published and they put it in a database and there are keywords that tell you what the subject of the paper is. They will tell you what language the paper is in, there'll be a full bibliographic reference so you know where to find it, it'll tell you how many pages it is, Please, please have a look at these databases (laughs) and um, make use of the work of all of these brilliant volunteers who have put them together and contribute to them if you find something useful. How do you access the full articles? Ah, Uh, Usually they are linked to their individual publishing place, as I recall. Right. Which means that for some of them that will put them behind a paywall so you'll have to buy the article. Yeah, okay. I think that's what I've come across before. That is a massive problem. Yeah, but you can sometimes judge how useful the article will be to you based on Mm, the abstract. mm -hmm. Sometimes it is a bit hit and miss and you might end up wasting your money. Mm -hmm. I've been approached as an author by people saying, will you give me a copy of your article? (laughs) So you could always write to the author and see if they'd be willing to share. Yeah, I've definitely heard heard of people who have had great success doing that. So Um, that's always worth a go. I should say, technically, you're in breach of copyright if you give people PDFs of your article. However, the bit that is copyrighted is the article in its final published typeset form, but you still own (laughs) the text itself. And if it's your unedited Word document, so it hasn't had any work done on it by the journal if you see what i mean that's what they own is Mm, is the article as it's been published but my understanding is that your work is still yours and if you send them your word document as submitted then that's still your work and you can do that and as an author you will have signed a copyright agreement of some description so you can look up what it is that you have essentially signed Mm. away don't forget that libraries sometimes have copies of journals as well and you're allowed to photocopy one article or one chapter or up to 10 percent or whatever it is also Mm. so That's always an option. One thing I will say is if this bothers you that much, you could also consider publishing your article in an open access publication. So one that people don't have to pay for, that is not behind a paywall, you don't have to subscribe to it. And there are a few conservation journals. They tend to be the online only ones, obviously, because physical printing is expensive. Um, Mm -hmm. But there are also some online only conservation journals. I think sometimes people see them as less prestigious because they're not necessarily published by the traditional journal publishers. But that's not always the case. If they are still peer reviewed, then it's just as high quality as um, studies in conservation or JIC or whatever and that is a good way to make sure that everybody has access to your work absolutely and again just to reiterate there is no harm shame or anything like that to publish your work elsewhere for example in a blog format or similar Mm -hmm. again it's about the work that you put into what you are putting out there so it's not that nobody can ever use something that you blog about that's not true you know it's still just as valid a way of sharing go ahead and share in any way that you can i think and good luck with whichever method you choose yes definitely good luck 
And if you feel you need a bit of a helping hand and can persuade your institution to pay, then come and sign up for one of my uh, all-day workshops. But failing that, I'm always happy for people to email me and um, ask for advice. And one of the best bits of advice I can give is to find a writing buddy because a lot of people find writing lonely and intimidating (laughs) and daunting. And if there's someone else who you know is also wanting to write something, then it can be quite motivating to have a writing buddy like that who can kick you up if you're not doing it, who can read your work (laughs) and comment constructively on it. You can read their work and give suggestions and so on. And I think things like that can be really helpful. It doesn't have to be done on your own. Today I'm reviewing Cultural Heritage Marketing, a relationship marketing approach to conservation services by Isabella Parovic, a Palgrave Macmillan publication from 2019. As you might gather from the title, this is maybe not a book aimed at every conservator, but rather conservators who do commercial work, want to do commercial work, or who want to go at it alone as freelancers. So prepare yourselves for a bit of a learning curve. I mean, unless you already have a marketing background, I suppose. You can immediately tell that this is a very academic book. Each chapter has an abstract and keywords before it even starts. So this book reads much like a series of papers. The language is a little lofty initially, but you can tell that the author really knows her subject incredibly well. Let's begin with the introduction. It would be a bit strange to begin with any other bit, I suppose. In this chapter, the author acknowledges the plights of the modern conservator regarding lack of job security, the trend in going freelance, and how conservators increasingly find themselves in need of business skills. It also gives us some useful definitions to work with, who conservators are, what conservation is, what we consider heritage to be, and who our potential customers are. Chapter 2 is called Bringing Marketing into Heritage Conservation Services and introduces readers to some of the concepts of marketing. Surprise, surprise, but not everyone knows what we do. And in general, we're actually pretty bad at explaining why people need our services. This bit of the book brings up some crucial points. We're skilled and ethics-driven people, and generally we think marketing sounds a little... dirty. Yet we very definitely need it in order to sustain our business endeavours. This is a great chapter that really dissects what we do and don't do as a profession. It also examines some of the underlying reasons of why that is. In the third chapter, we cover the nature of heritage conservation services, so that we can get a better handle on what we're selling and what our unique selling points actually are. This is a particularly academic chapter, so get your best jargon goggles on. It's entirely told through a marketing voice, so it's a little heavy going, but it's actually a really useful read. In the fourth chapter, we delve into the minds of our customers and explore their motivations, needs and expectations. Because the scope of this book is to work on our relationship with potential customers, the focus is on understanding individuals, i.e. private clients, but institutions are briefly mentioned for comparison. What makes for a happy customer? Conservation can be a tricky thing to understand from an outsider's perspective, uh, let alone know what a good product is when you see it, so this actually has some really interesting concepts. In many ways this is my favourite bit of the book as it's quite psychological and so directly applicable to my own work. In part 5 we start talking about processes, and here the business jargon kind of started hurting my head. 
but I found the flowcharts very useful and the scenarios set out in this chapter really make us think about how customers approach us and what we do for them in return. It's a little hard to distill an audio format, but this is actually a really helpful chapter, which I kind of think should be required reading for anyone wanting to go commercial. We round off as a summary chapter, which encourages us to think of marketing as more than just advertising. It gives readers some nuggets of advice and plenty of food for thought so that you can go off and make your own strategic decisions. This isn't a how-to marketing book, so there are no easy solutions, but it does provide you with more of a framework to work with. All in all, this is a really useful textbook, because this is not a light read. But it's good for anyone considering freelancing or commercial work, and I think it's generally applicable to anyone anywhere in the world. It's aimed entirely at conservators, so this book is meant for you. I kind of wish I'd had this three to four years ago. You can purchase individual chapters from the publisher if you'd like. Otherwise, the whole thing is available as an ebook for £39.99 or in hardback for £49.99. As usual, we'll pop a link in the show notes. This question is from someone who names themselves Leanne, and her question is, After 10 years in conservation, not ever achieving a full-time appropriately paid position, with two MAs and a hopeful PhD, all related to textiles and dress, do you think it's time I should decide to move on? If not, why not? Dear Leanne, thank you for your question. You don't say what country you're operating in, but I'm going to try and make an educated guess. So you've asked questions really about um, sort of a mid-career decision with two masters and a hopeful PhD. I do like the sound of a hopeful PhD. Hopefully you're doing it on, I don't know, ways to stop plastic from decaying, ways to make the profession more diverse and ways to raise the baseline income in conservation because that's my idea of hopeful research. But anyway... First but foremost, I'm assuming from what you said that you have applied for full-time permanent jobs and that you haven't got them. So I think that you need to just go back over the feedback that you got. Were you given any feedback at the time as to why you didn't get the job? What did you hear from that feedback? Did you make notes? Is there any way of going back to anyone that you know who's interviewed you who can talk to you about that? Sometimes when we hear feedback, it's... I don't know, it's so personal, it's so, it's so difficult, you've put so much into getting the job. It's very hard to hear the things that people are saying to you. If you're not getting feedback from jobs that you've applied for, what about from your friends? If you ask them very, very carefully what they think about why you might not be getting the jobs, what are you hearing from them? So I guess that's the personal um, side of it. In terms of the more sort of practical side of it, you said that you haven't got a full-time appropriately paid job, and I was wondering what that might be. Now, let's assume that you are, for this point, in the UK. Then full-time jobs, from what I can tell from the Office of National Statistics, are available in the UK in a proportion of three to one, although obviously often less so for women. So a full-time job is still a majority experience, but not a massive one at three to one. In terms of what appropriate pay is, then obviously nobody goes into conservation expecting to be super rich. 
If you look at what ICON's minimum threshold is, then the minimum threshold for a qualified Conservative is £24,648 in UK. Now, I'm assuming that that's not what you consider appropriate pay after 10 years in the sector. So what about other, you know, other countries or other pay scales? In America, according to the AIC survey, which is a few years out of date, but is still, I think, the latest at the moment, the median salary is US dollars which you pretty much seem to be getting uh, at the end of um, 10 years worth of experience. You can go up a little bit higher, 64 and so on, but, um, but 50 is kind of the median. And I'm guessing after 10 years, the median salary would be what you'd be after. In New Zealand, it's have, um, the sites that I've looked up say that the salary um, ranges from 55 to 70,000 a year. And after 10 years, you can expect it to be about 70,000 New, um, New Zealand dollars. But the websites there very clearly say that there are very poor job opportunities. There's not many opportunities for jobs in New Zealand. But the salary there is on par with people with careers in healthcare and in education. So I guess what you're looking for is a full-time job at or above the median pay, which if you get sort of sunk into the statistics, presumably means about 25% of the jobs that are out there. The other thing I noticed from the AIC survey, that the one thing that you could do to get more money is be a man. Leanne, I don't know for sure. There are a few clues in what you've told me, but I suspect you're not. But interestingly, in America, it was a bit interesting. I say interesting, I mean sad, that the the, the average salary for women was 45,000 US dollars and for men was 64.5. Seems a bit worrying, but perhaps it's a question of confidence. And confidence is where I wanted to go with you because... As I said, conservation is not a career picked by people for whom salary is a number one driver. And so I think you should be asking yourself about what your number one driver is. You mentioned costumes in textile as your career ambition. And I just wondered, have you not got the jobs because you're not a perfect fit for the jobs that you think you want because people can sense something from you? That's perhaps that you're not just a costume and textile person, but that you're something else. Perhaps what you give across is that you've got skills and abilities in a slightly different way, perhaps leadership or management, strategy or policy. Perhaps what you've got to offer doesn't come across when you go for job interviews because people hear you perhaps having a slightly different skill set from what they're looking for for a textile conservator. Could that be the case? Either way... I guess the question is, is what is it? What is the arrow that you want to follow? Where do you want to land? Because I can only honestly, I mean, I've always worked in conservation and been around conservation. So I can only advise people based on what I see around me and my shambolic career, taking all the wrong decisions and still ending up in an okay place. And that for me has always been to follow your dreams. And it's the only advice that I can really stand behind. That if what you're doing is what makes you happy, and you have enough to live on, then does it have to be permanent? Is there any job permanent anymore these days? And I think then the question is really, is after 10 years in conservation, are you satisfied? You've done a PhD and two masters. And interestingly, you're certainly overqualified. Looking at the American survey data again, it's a tiny percentage of people with a conservation qualification working in the sector, depending on whether it's conservation or a non-conservation PhD. But you're talking 1%, 2% of people have that qualification. So the question is, with your two masters, you are qualified enough to get the jobs and yet you continue to do education. Are the questions that you want to answer? Have you asked, have you found your groove? Have you found the right job for you? Should you be looking in a slightly different direction? I don't know. 
because obviously you don't tell me enough about yourself for me to know you. The last thing really is you said, should I give up or should I go on? Uh, If not, why not? And I think you should go on if you're happy, if it's making you happy, because we only get one life and if we don't spend it happy, I don't really know what we're doing with it. But the other reason you might want to stay is look around in a slightly more altruistic way. What are you giving to the profession? Are you someone who's changing our profession, shaping our profession, forcing us to ask questions of ourselves that perhaps we need to ask? Are you perhaps throwing new light into our profession? Are you offering new direction, new challenges? Are you offering the profession new insights from the topics of your PhD? Perhaps one of the reasons for staying is that conservation needs you. I obviously can't comment for sure, as an agony antis is entirely uh, anonymous, but I suspect if you asked your friends and peers, they would love you to stay. Over and out. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisement. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. And as always, we welcome your comments, questions, or corrections. And today I just want to share that Naomi has written in and said, Hello, I was just listening to your touchy-feely episode, and I noticed that you were discussing replicas. You mentioned 3D printing a fair bit. I'm currently completing a contract in the reproduction section of a conservation lab in Canada, so I thought I'd mention that the vast majority of the time we do moulds and casts of the objects, rather than 3D printing directly. It's cheaper, allows for more detail, and we have a much better idea of how the products age. Cheers, Naomi. Well, thanks very much for uh, telling us that, Naomi. Uh, I do appreciate that. And I guess what I was getting at in that episode was really that sometimes people do just take in the direct 3D print as a one-off replica. But yeah, fair point. Uh, Obviously, you can make replicas out of anything. You can start with a 3D print and then make it out of something else. So fair enough. That is true. I still like the real thing more than replicas, but <laughs> that's just me. Anyway, thank you so much, Naomi. Really appreciate it. As usual, we do love hearing from you, so do get in touch if you've got anything to say to us. Thanks for listening. With the C Word, and you'll be listening to Christina Rosaic, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jenny Mathiason. Join us next time for a conference special. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at theseawordpodcast, or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production.
on, I can... I hear, I hear Googling thing. happening. Yeah, I hear it. 